0: You're listening to the Radical Departures Podcast, your source for startup storytelling. I'm your host, Abby Klein. On the show, I interview entrepreneurs and other professionals from throughout the French and greater European startup ecosystems. We look at some of the interesting new developments that have taken place in France over the last few years and how the country is developing into a startup nation. On Radical Departures, you'll hear founders of some of the hottest companies share their stories and important things they've learned along the way. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. This is episode 43 of the Radical Departures podcast. My guest today is Ben Costantini, CEO and founder of Startup Sesame, the global network of tech events and connectors. With more than 10 years of experience in conference organization, he has one of the most extensive and trusted networks of event founders in the world. An expert in the creative industries, Ben advises entrepreneurs and investors in early and growth stages of their projects. In this episode, we discuss the importance of attending the right kinds of events, especially as a startup founder how Startup Sesame adds value for entrepreneurs, just what is so special about tech events, and much more. So without further ado, here's episode 43 with Ben Costantini. My guest today is Ben Costantini, CEO and founder of Startup Sesame. Welcome, Ben.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me.
0: So, what is Startup Sesame?
1: Startup Sesame is a network of tech events. We work with 35 events in 20 countries. We basically created an entire ecosystem around people who go to events for business and to work in innovation. So we have activities for entrepreneurs, for investors, for corporates, and for event organizers.
0: So what exactly is your value add? Where do you guys insert yourselves in this?
1: Basically, in Europe, you have a lot of events, and this number is growing Every year, people get lost. They don't really know which one are relevant, which one will be good for their own particular need. And we've been building an activity for startup founders to really help them navigate this ecosystem. And we believe that they can reach their goals and have the impact that they are aiming to if they really attend the right event at the right time. That is part of our work, is to assess which one is good for who, and then around this, build the connections that will make you succeed. So all the activities started around entrepreneurs, and we still remain true to this uh, mission to help entrepreneurs. But now we are able to work with other companies, in particular large companies, who also face the similar issue and challenge of navigating the event industry, the tech event industry, which is fairly new, actually.
0: Some of it is just about resource allocation, right? Because it's expensive to attend events, and you don't want to waste your money and time if it's not the right, uh, the best one for you.
1: Exactly. Well, there are two things I'd like to mention on this particular point of resource allocation. The first one is that people go to events because of word of mouth, which is okay if you go to a movie or to a concert because you may end up wasting a few 10, 50 euros max. But if you're betting the entire future of your company and allocating several thousands to go travel abroad, stay there, you know, have your booth, etc., and you waste your time you don't get, you know, the return that you were expecting, you might just accelerate the death of your company, right? But that is one issue. And this word of mouth, we even have a number that is coming from Web Summit. They, they consider that 80% of the decision making comes from word of mouth. It is a challenge for the organizers because they don't control it. And it's also a challenge for the participants because you can't really trust what people tell you. Then on the question around uh, resource allocation, it's actually an One of the area of business that we created after exploring this environment for a couple of years, we um, started to create an offer for large companies working with startups, so corporate venture, corporate accelerators, innovation team, to match them with the local event experts that would sort of come in, you know, and be this extra workforce that you need during the event. So saving you time, pre-event planning, getting you more qualified meetings Etc. So recognizing as an organization that you won't be able to do all the job and that you don't have the time to prepare properly for events. If you get to you do this first step, then you can call us because we have the solution then.
0: So how much time have you had to spend since you built Startup Sesame on evangelizing for this? Because I imagine a lot of people, especially at big corporates, don't realize, of course, that they actually need help with yep. something
1: like this. Well, we're still evangelizing right now. We started to really offer this after a year and a half. We had the offer on the paper. We were like talking to corporates, trying to understand how we can help them. And one of the challenges that we had at the very beginning was that we were broad, like we were covering any topic, any vertical within the tech industry. Because our first activities was we launched what we called a European program. So it was all about Europe, right? But Europe is what? Europe within mobility, within hospitality within travel within whatever you know vertical you could think of so when we launched our first uh, specialized program in mobility back in 2016 then we had a good uh, story better way to explain what is the added value that we could provide to mobility related companies right so from car manufacturers to uh, suppliers oems etc then we were able to really match you know something more tangible in terms of general events that have, you know, this type of track, but also specialized events, startups working in that space, accelerators with that space, investors from that space. So we created like a a mini ecosystem within a larger community that was specialized in that space. And that is something that we could then pitch uh, a lot better than uh, what we were doing before. So I would say after one year of activity, we then started to have the mobility vertical and then we were able to really offer this. And the first client was Michelin, actually back in the uh, end of 2016. And we took them to several events and get them to get more out of their participation than if they would have gone on their own. Evangelization is still ongoing. Uh, last year, 2017, we spent a lot of time talking to different uh, corporates, really exploring what are the needs. And I think we went maybe too far into the direction of an agency, so really trying to understand what are the pain points and what can we you know, offer and be customizing proposal, large, long proposals, long time to create the proposal, long time to receive feedback. And after six months and you get basically no more reply or whatever the reason, it's like, okay, that's not really the direction we want to take. So it was very interesting to understand better the need of the market, but this evangelization is still ongoing.
0: And that mobility, that first vertical that you developed, was that just sort of happenstance by who was coming to you and interested or... Did you have a, a reason for that?
1: Well basically, we had an opportunity to work with an event as a client, and that was the starting point. Then we created everything around it. We were very tactical; like it wasn't like, oh, looking at the market where there's you know the growth. Oh, we should go there. It was just, oh, there's someone who wants to do this. We already had resources, like in terms of the network of event back then. So when we started in 2015, we had six partner events. Back in uh, early 2016, we had 13. So we already had a few that were relevant for this particular industry. And so it was just like a matter of, okay, we need to add maybe two or three or four more to have a consistent network that is specialized in this vertical. And let's book you know, a few mentors who are good at that space. And then we can launch you know, the activity. I mean, it was very fast to do it. Like, it doesn't take that much time to create this, uh, again, mini ecosystem. And then that's something that uh, we've been replicating in all the verticals. So the year after we did entertainment and this year, earlier this year, we launched a vertical with Deep Tech. So it was very tactical. Now we're looking, we try, It's if I tell you that we are uh, all strategy driven, I'm not lying big time, uh, we just basically try to find the balance between opportunities and the sense of being very tactical and also remaining true to our vision and what we really want to build down the line. Because we believe that what we are working on has a huge impact and it's really our responsibility to help the industry evolve up to the point where we are creating something that is a new category in a sense, where people see like, okay, well, that's necessary. Like we don't, it's just not like nice to have.
0: How would you word the ultimate goal? Of Sesame, then,
1: The ultimate goal is to have an impact in the entire tech industry, not only in events. Here, the point is we believe that events are a n- fantastic medium to discover innovation and to connect with innovators. If you look at this at a global scale, this is totally unserved or unexploited medium. It's like everything that is happening during a single touchpoint, single event is a concentration of you know, knowledge and information that's basically get lost you know, after this happens. We are in a position today, because of the network, to really build this sort of next generation of, call it business intelligence, you know, due diligence, market validation. Mm. So this is where with this is, we see this, in this company, this industry moving further. It's like, you shouldn't go to an event if there's no real need for you to create those personal meaningful connections. You could get, you know, the knowledge and the information through other means.
0: But a lot of people, I guess entrepreneurs, especially when they're starting out, they think, I have to be omnipresent. I need to be everywhere and everybody needs to see my brand, my company name, my whatever to know that we exist. This is the opposite of what you say. Don't go unless there's some real reason Yeah, and not just visibility because you disappear at a lot of events.
1: I could talk for hours about (laughs) these particular points. Because what we started to do was for entrepreneurs, so this is everything that we learned at the beginning was really about what they are getting out of events and what is their motivation, how they prepare, what they do there, what they do during the event, what is the outcome, etc. So we definitely work with startups that have an interest in going out, whether it's because they want to go international, whether it's because they are really reached a certain cap, so they raised already some money, uh, usually pre-seed or seed. And it's necessary for them to be seen, right? To get this sort of visibility, to get some awards, to get this recognition, to maybe get to the next uh, founding stage. Then there is, you know, this sort of paradox where a lot of people within the industry will consider that if a founder spends too much time at an event and is not building the company, is not building the product, it's basically a bad sign. It's like red flag. I see you guy at several conferences in a row, I'm like, not investing in you at all, ever, right? And there's definitely something happening around those lines. And it's very hard to really understand and sort of self-assess what it is that is good for you. I believe that there is a sort of a cycle in terms of the life cycle of the company. The same you have when you want to raise funds, you have to spend time for that. And you sort of have to move away from a lot of the day-to-day business to really go for six months or hopefully less time, but all in to get your funding, same with events. It's like, okay, I'm going to be out for six months. I have to maximize everything there. So this is something I'm already planning nine months before I start this tour, right? Not just, oh, two months before, let's get the marketing team together to put me on the roadmap and on the list of speakers. Like, no, it's too late already. So this idea of really being more strategic in terms of planning, there's a lot of education that still can be done. Then on the sales side, where you know there's a lot of education as well for the sales team going to events. It's like okay, you reach a certain level now, you need to send your sales people to go to events to distribute, sell your product. It's not the same as I need the CEO, or the founders to be pitching and winning an award. It's another goal, right? I do believe you know a lot of companies are very self-aware and, and they they train, they learn, and they share this knowledge internally. But there's an immense uh, gap in terms of, of knowledge. And to come back to your question with the hype around entrepreneurship as a lifestyle, you also have this, you know, generation of young entrepreneurs who basically want the lifestyle that goes with it. And events are part of it. And we see it. It's like we call it the tech event generation. It's mm-hmm. like those young kids we go from an event to an event to have a great time together. It's like they are part of a I can say a movement, but it's really something cultural that is distributed all over Europe. And that is something new. Going to startup events, doing parties, connecting with influencers, not new, but that was reserved to a certain light back in the days. And now it's more distributed and more democratic in a sense. So this appeal to entrepreneurship, you see it also with events and with the lifestyle that goes with it.
0: And that's a double-edged sword because we want more entrepreneurs. We want to normalize this idea of being an entrepreneur, particularly in France, I'm talking about now, but not just because it's this sexy, fun thing that you get to travel all around and whatever. Because as you said before about uh, you know, VCs looking at startupers who just bop from event to event, what value are they producing? What are they really doing other than just having a good time? So it's good and bad, I guess. It sounds more like you're describing people going to music festivals than actually going to startup events.
1: You said it perfectly. And actually events, traditional B2B events. They are, you know, getting the inspiration of those startup conferences because startup conferences have the appeal to younger generation that live music festival have. It's like a total shift of, uh, you know, mindset and how you produce events. So traditional trade shows and exhibitions, they're like, how can we be as cool as the startup events? And the startup events are looking at the festivals, the music (laughs) festival, and like, how can we be as cool as those?
0: Is that a race to the bottom?
1: I believe that there's uh, room for everybody. It's like this uh, growth of uh, number of events. When someone tells us, oh, there's too many events, you're like, yeah, no. You can't say that. It's like you can't say that there's too many entrepreneurs. You know, it's like this is something that goes attached to it. And there is uh, something Darwinian there where basically, of course, there is a consolidation of the largest one that get bigger and bigger and they acquire the others, etc. But then there is always a new uh, technology trend, always a new theme You follow the hype curve, right? And and you see that uh, right now with quantum computing, you will have new conferences popping up. This blockchain right now is as crazy from an event point of view as it is from a press media coverage point of view. The frenziness around that theme, you see it with events. And it's a cycle. It's like, it's normal.
0: It's just funny to just go back to what you said about these B2B trade shows. It's funny to associate that in any way with something cool and fun to go to because, I mean, what is exciting about that?
1: Uh, That they make money.
0: Yes, but (laughs) to sell that, uh, yeah, I don't know. To go back a little bit to your personal background, what led you here today to be working on Startup Sesame?
1: Uh, Startup Sesame started as a joke, so I guess that is because I'm surrounded with people who have a lot of a good sense of humor. Right. I have a background of working with um, events and particularly with conferences I've been working as a conference curator, which is the cool and sexy way to say that you work with something that doesn't generate money and work with speakers. And you basically try to show to whoever is the one making money in your event that this is really cool to have this particular speaker because this is edgy. This is the latest thing. And they look at you and be like, yeah, wait, I have a sponsor, you know, who needs to be speaking at that time. So forget about your cool idea. I particularly learned a lot and I'm, you know, grateful for that time of my life uh, working at a very large exhibition organizer. This is where I, I really understood what is the, the economics of the largest, you know, trade show, uh, which is really where the money is. All the, lo- you know, all the events that we have in our network, they not so many are profitable, right? So this is my background. Like I started to work putting events together even before working at this uh, larger exhibition company then I worked with LeWeb for a short period of time, basically for the last edition of December 2014. And that was my sort of dive into the startup ecosystem, particularly in France. In a very short amount of time, I just basically got to meet with everybody who was someone here in Paris and also internationally. Working with those uh, international conferences, as I was doing back then, gave me a very interesting network. I used to say that I knew more people in the US who were running you know, industries than here in France, which was very challenging for anything that I could think of from my own personal career development. It was like, okay, well, if I go to the States, then I'm going to have a job. But here, I don't know that many people, right? So I had this transition working with LeWeb. And uh, after LeWeb was uh, acquired back by its uh, founders, I basically started my own business again. So I spent four years in my life working for someone else, and the rest I was working for myself, which means that I was working for a lot of people. I had like many bosses, you know that. Mm -hmm. But that is what I've done since I was 23. When I was still studying, I was already running my own business, trying to keep it, to be both a student. And I don't like to say an entrepreneur because it sounds very, I'm French, you know. So (laughs) I was just a chef d'entreprise, you know. So it's very administrative now I see more myself as an entrepreneur in the sense that I take risk and uh, I'm not sure about how this company will look like in six months from now, in 12 months, even less.
0: Startup Sesame is kind of a meta startup, isn't it? I mean, you work with startups, and, but you are sort of one yourself. Yeah. We, yeah. And
1: it's something we try to keep it as much as possible. It's like not becoming an agency. So, keeping ourselves uh, always sort of on the curve of like bankruptcy because we reinvest everything that we get. We reinvest in talent. We reinvest in building our own technology tools and really being like finding this sort of product market fit that everybody's trying to get, right? And this is the same that we try to build internally. So, yeah, working with startups, so having this angle of being an acceleration program, but also working with large companies, which looks like an agency type of thing, and building your own stuff. Because you have those activities and trying to build it in a way that we can scale. So, you know, grow it without all the hours of personal work attached to delivery of the product. That's the trick. Yep.
0: So from a practical standpoint, you do have this accelerator angle as well. If a startup wants to benefit from you guys, what do they do? Where do they start?
1: Two things, two options. The first one is that they apply to join our annual program. We will open our next call for entry in January 2019. So it's every year in January that we are looking for the next batch of startups. Uh, we are quite selective. So you should be already uh, mature enough to be able to go to five, six, seven events over the year with our help. So it means usually you already raised some funds and you already have a product to show. You need to like to go to events, you know, to be comfortable pitching. So we take companies that are already trained. It's funny to see that most of the companies that we have in the program were already in an acceleration program like Techstars or, you know, a startup bootcamp, etc. So they already know how to present themselves. We are not able today to teach you this when we get you in the program because everything that we do is online. I mean, it's not, we don't take them physically here in Paris. This is the first way. And if you want to be on the list, we have an ongoing wildcard which is basically very easy to get on our website. So you drop your name there and and then we'll make sure that we contact you when the the call is open.
0: Is that vertical specific?
1: We have a general program and then we have three verticals, one for mobility, another one for entertainment and the new one this year for deep tech. So any industry works and we're also open to international. So it's not only for European startups, but the fact is that we do Look very closely at companies that apply from outside, from Europe, because we know from the past, we worked with a few of them, that when it comes to, okay, you come to this event in two months or in a month and a half, and it's like, uh, I don't know, we can't, you know, because Mm -hmm. you're based in the States or or something like that. So we are a bit more cautious with this. The second option is that you ask uh, the accelerators or the corporate that is, you know, hosting you to work with us. And then, you know, this is the one who will pay for -hmm. you to get our services.
0: So that's preferable to you in a way.
1: I don't know what I'm saying. Like the ones who join our program, they get something unique. that uh, the other, even if you pay, don't get that.
0: Is it something that you would do in the future or that you are doing at all now? Partnering directly with accelerators like Techstars, for example, and offering this as part of the package or?
1: Well, their financials at the moment don't work. We had that conversation already in the past.
0: And while obvious. there is
1: an excitement on both sides, when we look at the numbers, someone needs to, take to pick the bill at the end and it's not part of uh, you know, the business model. As far as I know, I mean, if an accelerator is listening to this and uh, has a budget, he can just you know, call me or send me an email.
0: I've met some of the wonderful people who you work with, uh, mentorship capacity. What do they add and what do they get back out of the program?
1: It's very, very simple. Uh, the mentors, we ask them to provide warm intros to startups during events. This is really the core value. So we look at mentors who are going to events, like it's part of their thing to be attending conferences. So being able to facilitate just, oh, here is a Sysamer. let me introduce you to this investor who is working with your field. Like this is the value that we're looking for. But then based on their own personal profile and interest in the startup, some of them will basically be like, oh, this startup is interesting, I might be following them and investing. This is part of the reason like, uh, for a mentor to be in touch with our startups. Mm. Recently, I don't know if it's publicly yet, but one of our startups would join a program in San Francisco that is run by one of our mentors. So this is really nice. And the mentor is really happy to get this. But usually the interest for a mentor is because in return they get speaking opportunities. So we basically kind of compensate them with the time and the, and the dedication that they have for the startups with pushing them to potential speaking opportunities.
0: So something you like to talk about, Ben, are event hacks. Can you share a few of those with our listeners?
1: We really love to hack events in a good way. Hacking is always something that you do to improve the event down the line. One of them that is pretty easy to do and people don't really do it that well is to work on the press list differently. Like you look at the press list of any event. So first of all, you need to get the list. Sometimes it's easy. Others, it's not so easy, but there are ways you can ask, you know, maybe a friend who is working at a media or a large corporate who is uh, spending money there. Basically, you get your hands on the press list. Check out the niche media, the smaller ones, the ones that are coming from emerging markets, stuff like that, instead of going for the big guns, you know, who won't have any interest in your pitch. So if you get to an event where there are, you know, media coming from southeastern Europe, you know, Asia, Africa, I'm talking about European events, you get their attention, like, and you get a press, you know, you get an interview in the media in Armenia, and that's very nice. You know, it's like you're basically hacking away to get exposure to your startup, and then the other sort of more established media in your own market will see that you already got press coverage abroad. Another interesting hack is a classic, but for us it is. It's just to squat the speaker lounge, like just get there in and stay there. You sit there and stay there and be nice and talk to the people around you. That's all. That's like a basic. And not so hard to get in most of the speaker lounge. Actually, a lot of conferences just have free access there. It's not really control. And some of them, if there is a control, you just basically need to get with the speaker inside. And then some of them don't let you in, but you can always try. And when you are in, just stay. There's a lot coming out of those uh, areas. And actually, uh, you know, one of the largest events in Europe is selling the access to their speaker lounge with what they call the forum to €25,000. So there is definitely value in sitting there. There will be a couple, but we have a few more.
0: That just makes me think of something, though, because, okay, maybe you get in the door and you can sit there and, and hang around and whatever, but you still need to know how to, what to do with that access, Right. Yeah, to talk to people. Yeah, you need to know how to talk to people. And like you said, that's not something you guys have the means to train people on at this point. So they really need to come equipped with that already.
1: We don't train them to pitch, but we do have a few tips in terms of networking. And part of the mentorship, that's something that we want to develop, but we are still very far from offering this as a structured program. is to, okay, we have a few mentors We can teach you how to network. And the codes of networking in these professional environments are fairly simple. Don't just come in and tell me, uh, you know, what you do and why your startup is amazing. And there is a very interesting input from um, Robin Waters, who was telling us, you know, the icebreaker, instead of coming in and telling me, oh, okay, who are you and where are you from? And what do you do? Instead of that, just ask me, what is the place you call home or when you get back, you know, from traveling? And uh, what are your patients in life? And if you ask this, well, basically, you will end up knowing the same but it's a very much more, you know, uh, engaging and open way to start a conversation than going like, where do you live and, and what do you do? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and you also, you stand out. Then they remember maybe somebody yeah. who asked that.
1: It's very hard for, especially first-time founders, right, to go and be like, okay, I'm going to spend like 15 minutes, maybe more, with someone I don't know what's the value there. And I'm just like opening the conversation to these sort of very broad, you know, life-related challenges and all of that. This is uh, something that we also call it serendipitous networking. It's like something that you are able to really maximize when you already have a network. When you're starting, it's very hard to find this sort of balance. In the professional environments of startup conferences, I think everybody is aware of the you know time constraint and you should be feel very comfortable going direct to people. Like not when they're talking to someone, please, you know, but like you go direct to them, engage the conversation in as much as you can, a nice way. And- Close it fast. Mm. Respect the time of the others. So it's like 10 minutes, 15, it's enough. This is something very obvious in the context of social networking in North America, for example. It's not so obvious in part of Europe. Also, another way to approach this is that you give you very specific targets. It's like, okay, I'm going to that conference. I really need to meet four business angels and four potential clients. This is my target. And you make yourself accountable to those targets. And you work to reach them. So to basically get four you know, meetings with BAs and four meetings with corporate leads, you potentially need to contact 15 of them. Maybe you need to have some warm There's a lot of work happening before. And then when you are navigating the event and you have this sort of spontaneous introductions or you go to people to talk to them, which again can be very awkward if you're not talented naturally at this. And we know some people who are very talented at this. So an advice will be that you recruit one for your team, is that you you really follow your plan. It's like, You have a plan, you follow it. And then it's going to be a lot easier for you to go and talk to the people and and you know why you go to talk to them, keeping in mind that you're not over-pitching. So that's always the balance.
0: So Ben, thank you for joining me today. And I have one more question for you before you go. What is your personal definition of success?
1: I used to think of it as something that is linked to legacy, that you have an impact that sort of remains after you were there. Like you, you write a book, you know, you plant a tree, this type of impact. That was my definition of success. More recently, I've also been looking at something a bit more tangible and more personal of being able to have a lifestyle and a certain wealth to live in places that I like, spend time with people that I like, call homes, different places that I love. It's not like linked to have a huge, you know, amount of money or have a jet, you know, it has an impact in terms of how you approach revenue generation, which makes me a lot more cynical than when I was 20 and I was studying sociology and uh, I was working in the creative common space. Now I'm working in startups with people who have a lot of money to invest. So I'm trying to have this uh, impact and this form of legacy, but keeping my head, you know, cold in terms of what's in it for me. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: That wraps up another episode of Radical Departures. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. And let us know who you'd like to hear on the show. Catch you next week.